0: The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Welcome to the Whole Health Cure podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Burquist. On this podcast, we explore the science and provide inspiration and skills for living your happiest, most fulfilling, and healthiest life. Multiple sclerosis is the most common immune-mediated disorder affecting the central nervous system. It's a demyelinating disease in which insulating covers of nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord are damaged. This damage disrupts the ability of parts of the nervous system to communicate, resulting in a range of signs and symptoms, which can include double vision, blindness, muscle weakness, trouble with sensation and coordination. I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Sarai Stancic to discuss her remarkable journey from physician to MS patient and back to physician with a mission to educate and empower patients to achieve optimal health via lifestyle modification. Dr. Stancic is a board-certified physician and the founder of Stancic Health and Wellness. She received her medical degree from New Jersey Medical School in 1993. She completed an internal medicine residency and served an additional year as chief medical resident at University Hospital in Newark, New Jersey. In response to witnessing the height of the catastrophic HIV epidemic while in medical school in Newark, she became very interested in the field of infectious diseases. She wanted to be part of the solution to AIDS healthcare crisis and went on to complete a fellowship in infectious diseases. From 1999 to 2006, she served as Chief of Infectious Diseases at Hudson Valley Veterans Administration Hospital in New York. During those years, she treated hundreds of patients with viral hepatitis and HIV, as well as other infectious diseases with a multidisciplinary approach to support her patients' overall well-being. Beyond her responsibilities as an infectious disease physician, researcher, and chief of infection control, she directed the MOVE program, a federal VA initiative to encourage healthy lifestyles in veterans. She later joined the viral hepatology team at Roche and conducted clinical studies for new, more efficacious treatments for hepatitis infections. During these research years, she continued to see patients at Bronx Veterans Administration Hospital in New York City. She's authored several research papers in peer-reviewed medical journals. In 1995, as a third-year medical resident, Dr. Stancic was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. This unforeseen health challenge changed the course of her life, both professionally and personally. Dr. Stancic, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. I feel like my whole life just flashed before my eyes as I heard <laughs> it's just just such a remarkable story you know I first read about your story actually in a Forks Over Knives website where you wrote such a touching article of how life changed in a moment for you going from doctor to patient can you tell us a little bit more about that experience Sure, so um, you know, my story really begins
1: uh, back in 1995. It was actually October 11th and I was a third year medical resident in the midst of a very busy call, deeply fatigued. I remember making, back, make, making it back to my own call room and, and um, the minute my head hit that pillow lights out, uh, shortly after a few, I would say about a half an hour, I was paged again. And when I tried to get up out of that sleeping position, uh, an extraordinary thing happened, I couldn't feel my legs. And I remember reaching down to touch them, and it felt as if they were someone else's. Uh, Panic set in, and uh, next thing I knew, I was brought to the emergency room to undergo an MRI of my brain and spinal cord. And those studies confirmed a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis with lesions in both my brain and spinal cord. And so just like that, uh, everything changed. I was no longer that vibrant, Healthy, or at least I thought I was a young woman that had walked through those hospital doors earlier that morning. I was now a chronic disease patient admitted to the hospital.
0: Gosh, what a terrifying experience. And how old were you when this happened? It was a week after I turned 28 years old, so pretty young. Wow, that's remarkable. And so from the time you were diagnosed, what happened after that? So you were still able to, you weren't able to feel your leg.
1: Right. So I was started on IV steroids to treat that acute exacerbation. And then a week later, uh, as an outpatient, I was started on a disease-modifying therapy. Back then, Sharon, there was only one drug approved by the FDA uh, for disease modification in multiple sclerosis, a drug called beta-seron. And it was uh, an injectable uh, interferon I would have to inject every day. And my doctors told me that this was the key to slowing the progression of this chronic neurologic disabling disorder, and um, for, you know very in a very frightening fashion, it uh, reminded me that uh, without this medication, I would likely be in a wheelchair within ten to twenty years. So you can imagine how difficult that was to here when you're twenty eight years old. Of course, I was going to to do whatever possible to prevent that from happening. So I, I did start that medicine. Uh, but the medicine side effect profile was intense, which included fever, chills, muscle aches and pains, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, anorexia, insomnia. Uh, this was a drug that was really in large part um, really compromising my quality of life. And, and I was struggling uh, after, you know, two to three weeks of doing this every day. I, I didn't think I could do it much longer. So, I returned to my physician to discuss uh, what was ex- what I was experiencing, and so the response to that was prescribing additional medicines to treat the symptoms of the disease so, as you might imagine, you can see how my list of uh, prescriptions grew quite dramatically in a relatively short period of time. I can tell you by the time I was in my early thirties, I was taking at least a dozen medicines and Despite all of the medicines, uh, my disease progressed. And in large part, uh, um, uh, my quality of life uh, was, again, truly compromised. And by the time, again, I was in my early 30s, I was dependent on a cane or set of crutches. So it was a difficult time.
0: Wow. And you stayed on as a resident and you not only finished your residency, but you went on to do a fellowship while all this was happening?
1: Yes. Yes. And when I look back, I I really don't know how I did it, but somehow I I pieced it together and uh, I did uh, accomplish uh, and complete the expectations of both my residency and my fellowship.
0: Which, you know, to anybody who is or isn't familiar with resident and fellowship hours, they're grueling even when you are in the best of health. So I can only imagine what it must have been like when you were just having struggles of your own. Wow. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It was definitely um, a a very difficult time in my life. uh, And there was a lot of pain and suffering when I look back and think about it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And so here you are early thirties on a dozen or more medications requiring assistance with just walking so either cane or yeah
1: sometimes uh, even requiring a a diaper you know I had bladder issues Um, fatigue is is the most common symptom that MS patients uh, uh, report and it's not fatigue like you might envision I mean it's hard to explain what what that MS fatigue is like but it's 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 debilitating it it it's hard to even get up out of bed. I mean, it's uh, depression. Of course, is is a part of this uh, very complicated disease. And so, yeah. I mean, but by the time, as I said, I was probably eight years into the disease. And that's where I stood. Twelve medicines. I mean, I walked around with a pill box. Um, very rarely did I leave my home without a cane. And um, I was not. Uh, I think. It's safe to say that I was a depressed young woman with with a, a little uh, sense of hope that things might get better.
0: And and so here you are doing everything you were told to, doing these daily injections, working through the side effect, and your disease is progressing. How demoralizing was that?
1: Incredibly demoralizing, and 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 exactly. Um, this idea that i was that I was doing exactly what I was being told, remaining compliant with the medicines as prescribed um, and feeling each day that i there was just less and less of me and and just feeling out of control and not feeling empowered in any way um it it was just um again you know demoralizing and and in many ways disheartening
0: gosh and. Now, somewhere along the way, and and when was it when you read about plant-based diets and and began to feel empowered that there was more that you could be doing? Yeah. So, you know, it it came in, in the the key
1: to, to to all of it came in in the oddest of ways. I was at this point um, in my office. This is when I was chief of infectious diseases in in uh, at the Hudson Valley VA in New York, and it was it was actually 2003. And by chance I came ac- across a throwaway medical journal that, you know, like it wasn't the New England Journal of Medicine. It was like resident today, some, some silly um, journal. But on the cover of the journal, I saw the words multiple sclerosis and, and of all things, blueberries. And and that's what caught my attention. So I picked up the the journal and, and flipped through the, the article. And of course, the, the study that they were reporting was highly unscientific and poorly constructed it was just a small group of ms patients that had been fed a diet rich in blueberries and the authors went on to to speak to um the patients um feeling better that that they reported a little less fatigue and and spoke to the antioxidant and phytonutrient capacity of this this blueberry rich in anthocyanin and i thought to myself you know this is ridiculous i can't believe anyone did a study on this um, but, but something about that study um, wouldn't leave me. And it wasn't that I thought eating blueberries was going to solve my problems. A much more important question surfaced from that line of thinking for the first time as an adult practicing attending physician, I considered the following question. Could there be a connection between diet and disease? And. Um, You know, you'd think if anyone could answer that question, you'd think I'd be able to. I mean, I was a physician, right? Four years of medical school, four years of internal medicine residency, and then another two as a subspecialist. That was a decade of my life dedicated to higher education in the field of medicine. And I couldn't think of any examples in which my mentors, professors, or educators ever connected those two dots. But I remained curious, most likely because I was desperate. And so I decided then to turn to the scientific literature, looking for those answers. So I went to PubMed and I typed in words like chronic disease and diet and multiple sclerosis and diet. And then what I got back was, of course, nothing short of remarkable. And that was that eye-opening aha moment that um, made me realize there was this entire world that I wasn't familiar with, this idea of lifestyle, this idea of diet and exercise and stress and sleep that for the first time in my life I became aware of and it's there uh, as I read and as I explored uh, the ample evidence uh, in the literature that I became educated I educated myself and I realized that um, there was incredible value in what I was putting on my plate and um, and how I was exercising you know back in the, believe it or not in the 1990s it was falsely believed that exercise exacerbated Multiple sclerosis. So, my physicians advised me not to exercise and to conserve my energy because of the fatigue that I was experiencing. So, you can imagine I was doing all the wrong things. And as I read more and more and uh, became educated and empowered, I realized that I needed to implement changes in my own life.
0: Wow. And how many years into being diagnosed with MS was this? This was eight years. Eight years. Yeah. And obviously then you decided to try to make some of the changes you're reading about into your own life.
1: Yes. Yes. And and the first thing I did was uh, I, I changed my diet. I adopted a whole food plant-based diet and uh, I did so not because it was the popular, you know, fad diet of the day or Um, it was hashtag trending. I did so because the overwhelming body of evidence in the scientific literature pointed toward a diet rich in fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts, and seeds as being the ideal diet, not just for MS or for diabetes or for heart disease or for cancer. It is the overwhelmingly um, best diet for all of us. So I... I began to implement these changes uh, in, in my diet. And I started to exercise, you know, back in, as I said, I was told not to exercise. So I was very, as you might imagine, after eight years of doing little to nothing, I was highly deconditioned. And so my husband bought me a stationary bike and, and would have to assist me to get onto it. And I could do a minute or two and then exhausted and in pain, I would come off and it would require, I would, it would take 10 to 15 minutes to, to recover but I would get on the next day and the day after that and the day after that. And over time I began, I, I, I built strength and endurance and stamina. Stress was also an important part of, of the changes I needed to implement in my life. I wasn't going to, you know, take on that extra research project or start yet another clinic or, or stay past, you know, a particular time. I made it clear to my team that I would leave at, you know, by five o'clock, unless there was a patient emergency. Uh, And, you know, one of the hardest things, Sharon, that for me was learning how to sleep properly. I was, um, from the start, uh, prescribed hypnotic agents like Ambien, and I was addicted to them. I didn't know how to sleep without these medicines. And in fact, became nervous when I was running uh, down on my my pills. Uh, Oh, I got to refill that, that, Ambient to make sure I can sleep and learning how to create effective sleep hygiene in my home, creating structure around my going to bedtime and wake up time. And I learned how to sleep really. I'm like a professional sleeper now, and I, <laughs> and I feel so well rested and, and joyful in the morning. And that has a lot to do with it. But I didn't know how to do this, I had to learn it myself. And you know what happened? Uh, it didn't happen in a week and it didn't happen in a month, but over time, I started to feel better. And I always joke, and I, I say, you know, at first it was something as subtle as I could stay up past jeopardy. That was, like, huge for me. Or on a particular day, I, I, you know, I'd get to my office and feel confident enough to leave the cane in the car. So I definitely saw those types of signs very early on, and I felt that the decisions I had made were, had put me on the right path uh, to some some degree of recovery. I just never really knew to what
0: point. Wow. And, and these early signs, like leaving your cane behind or, or staying up a little bit later, did they take weeks, months, or years?
1: I can, I can tell you that,
0: um you know, it's hard. I, I get asked
1: that question a whole lot. There's, there's a, a photograph that I often when I speak that I show the audience, it was, it was taken in July of 2005. So it was about two years into um, my lifestyle change. And I, I have that photograph because it, I remember I attended a wedding of a friend of mine on that day and I did two things on that day that really um, will seem trivial to most people, but to me uh, meant so much because I I realized from where I had come on that day, I wore heels and I danced with my husband, which again, seemed trivial, but these were things that, you know, five years earlier were were like impossible uh, uh, for me. So, I would say definitely, within two years of my lifestyle change, i, I saw probably the greatest benefits uh, of of the of the um, changes in, in in my behavior uh, and and it, around that time is when i when I started to think about um, the possibility of running a marathon.
0: Yeah, and gosh, you were such an inspiration, I know to go from needing assistance. With walking to then running a marathon, I mean that's just remarkable. What made you even think about trying that? Yeah, so I, it's it's a funny story. My my brother
1: who lives in Los Angeles came to visit me. Uh, I live here in New Jersey, um, in sometime around two two thousand and five, and he um, hadn't seen me in a bit, and he was so pleased to see me free of the the cane and. You know, leaner, happier. Just you know, I remember him making the comment. It's great to see my my sister coming back to us. Uh, and during that visit, he mentioned he had he had run the Los Angeles Marathon and and discussed uh, or shared with me the you know the excitement of crossing the finish line and the accomplishment and so on and so forth. And towards the end of the conversation, he said to me, "I know this is going to sound crazy to you, but I think you should run a marathon." And I remember looking at him and sort of shooting back. <laughs> Angrily, like, are you kidding me? I can't run a marathon. I have multiple sclerosis, you know. And I always say to him, it's the greatest gift he's ever given me because saying those words out loud um, and almost in, in an angry fashion awakened me, really. I, I then realized that I was living my life as this woman um, with multiple scler- sclerosis first and foremost. And with that label came so many limitations, things I could do and things I couldn't. And I realized I needed to lose that um, designation. So my brother headed back to Los Angeles and, but he had planted that seed and I started to go out and, and try to do a little bit of running and it didn't go well at first. I would fall. My balance was off and uh I'd scrape my knees, but I would heal up and then try again. And, um, I can tell you right down the street and i'm actually looking at it from where i'm sitting right now there's a a nature preserve called the celery farm and it's and it's small there's a body of water and there's a little path that runs around its edge if you make it the entire way around it's about a mile and a tenth and i remember the very first time i made it the entire way around without falling or stopping and i felt truly invincible Uh, i remember calling my husband and saying to him on that day I don't know how and I don't know when, but someday I'm going to run that marathon. And I'm happy to share that back on May 2nd, 2010, I did cross the finish line at the New Jersey Marathon. And it was an extraordinary moment for me, not just because I ran a marathon, but because all that I had done, all of these changes that I had implemented in my life, had borne fruit. And um, today, I'm about to... I say celebrate or commemorate 24 years since my diagnosis coming up here in October. Um, And I am medication free, disability free, and, you know, empowered more than ever before to share this very simple healing message with whomever is willing to hear it.
0: Gosh, that is so remarkable. And yeah, so in terms of with, you know, sharing this message, you know, when you learned that, you could be on this path to healing through lifestyle and certainly somewhere in the back of your head, you must've wondered why is this not common knowledge? And, and what have you, I know since then you've done a lot, but can you share with us what you've done to get the word out so other people can benefit?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, one of the, one of the, um, primary initiatives for me uh, were very early on. So back in, in I should say back in 2012, uh, I decided in large part for two reasons, um, that, uh, two examples of, of, of what had really fundamentally changed me was obviously my personal story and seeing it, uh, the power of lifestyle and the difference it had made in my life. And then also, as a practicing infectious uh, diseases specialist in New York, just witnessing so much pain and suffering that I knew was largely preventable. I mean, it was yet you know yet another infected diabetic foot ulcer, or another um, you know ventilator-associated necrotizing pneumonia, or you know all the all the cases, the patients that I was seeing. These these were largely secondary to complications from chronic diseases that we know are largely preventable, and. Um, it often felt like in caring for these patients that I was, um, it felt like trying to put out a, you know, roaring, raging fire with a glass of water. I felt very ineffective. And I started to think uh, I wanted to spend more of my time really in a preventive uh, uh, approach and really prevent, uh, helping patients or empowering patients um, to to prevent these deleterious pathways that we see too commonly in clinical practice. So in 2012 I decided to leave behind my work as an infectious disease specialist and and started lifestyle medicine practice and I was simply going to practice internal medicine with an emphasis on prevention and really help my patients that were coming in with diabetes or obesity or heart disease or MS or rheumatoid arthritis or whatever and help them change their lifestyle to improve uh, their outcomes, and even in in some cases, reverse uh, their chronic diseases. And uh, I saw this at, fir- at, at first at the VA when I uh, volunteered to direct the MOVE program, which is like lifestyle medicine, light in, in the VA. And I was teaching veterans how to eat properly and walk with them at lunchtime and, and talk to them about uh, stress. And I saw the benefits in in in, in my patients in that capacity. And so in 2012, I decided that I would do this full time and, and um, you know dedicate the latter half of my career to this idea of prevention. But importantly, um, when I opened the practice, uh, I knew this was great at great risk because no one knew what lifestyle medicine was. And I can tell you that my colleagues who are wonderful physicians and, and dear friends, uh, questioned, uh, what I was doing, Uh, you know, they would say to me, you're going to leave behind your work in, in viral hepatitis, and you're going to tell patients to eat plants. And I was like, yes, uh, you can imagine how that went over. Um, you know, it was, it, it didn't go over well anyway. Um, so when I started my practice, I had zero patients and zero stream of referral um, but patients started to call in curious uh, uh, to learn more about what I was doing. And and um, we started to work with patients and they started to lose weight and they started to uh, come off medicines and they shared this with, with their uh, family and friends and the, and the practice grew organically. But one of the, the most important, I shouldn't say most important, but one of the most surprising things about my practice was that Today, I have more than 40 patients that are also physicians uh, in my practice, and and that that happened because at one point we had a patient in common. We had a diabetic, uh, poorly controlled diabetic, who came to see me, wanting to better manage their diabetes. And um, you know, they come off the medicine, their hemoglobin A1C goes from 10 to 5.2, uh, they lose 40, 50 pounds, and then they go back to see their internist or their endocrinologist, and and the endocrinologist is, wow, you know, so surprised. What did you do? And, and then they share this idea of lifestyle medicine and talk a little bit about the work that we've done together. And then these physicians call me, and we have a conversation. And I share the literature with them. And then they call me back and they say, you know what, I want to come see you. And I'm thinking it's okay as a, you know, we're going to get together, have some tea, and and talk. And they're like, no, I want to come see you as a patient because I'm. You know, hypercholesterolemic, or I'm carrying too much weight, or I'm, you know, I have too much uh, stress, or whatever it is, and and that to me was extraordinary because um, it's of course a privilege uh, to care for any patient, but when I have a patient who's also a physician, that's really extraordinary because I know that helping this individual is not only going to help them personally, but it's going to change the way they practice medicine looking forward, moving forward. And that's what I saw. And so many of the conversations that I had with my patients and with physicians who contact me from across the country, the question that always arose was why didn't we learn this in medical school? Why was this not uh, the all-important lesson, the foundation on which uh, we learned all else? It's so powerful and so important. And that's when it came to me um, that I needed to do what I could to catalyze change in, in medical education, because it is extraordinary that we get no nutrition education in medical school. There's no emphasis placed on this at all. And yet we know that by modifying our our, our diets and, and our physical activity and addressing all aspects of lifestyle that we can prevent 80% of chronic disease, that that is amazing and it is a message that is completely missed in medical school and that must change we have a responsibility to correct course here uh and i and this is something i feel very very strongly about and it is why um i mentor the lifestyle medicine interest group at rutgers new jersey medical school it is why uh, i spent the past four years of my life making a documentary film that sheds light on this that not only tells the public the importance of your personal, you know, your personally adopting these optimal lifestyle behaviors, but it's also about, and I think importantly, um, assuring that we change the way we train our physicians and healthcare professionals so that they all speak to this universally. Uh, and, And I believe if we get, if we have all healthcare professionals speaking to this, Ubiquitously, that we can effectively turn the tide of this chronic disease epidemic, but we all have to work together to get it done.
0: Ah, oh, here, here. Gosh, you know, when I think that you started this seven years ago, um, I mean, clearly at the time you were a pioneer, really much of a trailblazer promoting lifestyle medicine. And here we are seven years later, and it's still considered such a new subspecialty in medicine where so many people don't know about lifestyle medicine, um, as a way of taking care of patients. Um, so, you know, you've done so much work leading the way and yet there's still so much more work to be done. Well, I,
1: the good news is that this is, uh, an ever growing, uh, movement and, um, it's picking up steam and, and it's exciting. Um, so I can tell you that, uh, Ten years ago, uh, lifestyle medicine—very, uh, w- w- very, very few, very few people. I mean, you know this. The American College of Lifestyle Medicine is growing near exponentially, which is so exciting. Yes. Uh, and and it, it's such a beautiful conference to attend as a physician. I, I I'm sure you agree with me. Like when you go to an internal medicine conference, or or you know some other subspecialty. I I would attend infectious disease conferences, or you know uh, liver conferences. Uh, when I was doing a lot of hepatitis work, and you know, you never feel the same way in those conferences as you do at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. You feel inspired, you feel hopeful. Everyone there um, is re- is engaged in and representing uh, these these uh, uh, behaviors themselves. I mean, the physician. I think it's very important that we uh, are examples for our community. So um you know i ride my bike to my office my patients and community see me food shopping in our local markets and so i practice what i preach and um we can i think that's important to to be uh, an example and to see when you go to the american college of lifestyle medicine we are all on on that same wavelength and it's a beautiful thing to witness to see so many physicians and healthcare professionals coming together like-minded and really
0: um just setting the example and and it's a beautiful thing. Oh, it's, it's really incredible. I've never been around a group that has so much passion and energy behind the work that they do. And I've never seen a group more gratified out of the work that they're doing.
1: Agreed. I couldn't have said it better. Absolutely. And, and, um, I hope more and more physicians, uh, become members and, and join because I can tell you that, uh, the conference is is really, um, uh, you're definitely going to leave inspired and, and with, you know, a heart full of hope. And, and uh, it's just, again, it's medicine, right? It's, it's another bit of medicine for all of us.
0: Oh, absolutely. And in the little bit of time we have left, I want to circle back to the documentary that you briefly mentioned, Code Blue. So you started that four years ago, and and I can only imagine, uh, you know, the amount of time and effort. It's really probably more of a labor of love than, <laughs> than um than anything. Given you know all that goes into producing a documentary, but can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So um, Code Blue really um,
1: uh, is a film that that largely um, place tells the story of where we are in in clinical medicine today. Um, You know, we we spend nearly $3 trillion in healthcare and nearly 90% of that money is dedicated to chronic disease. We're living in a world where chronic disease is exploding, where diabetes, you know, when I was in medical school, rates of diabetes were 2%. We're now brushing past 10%. And the CDC tells us by 2050, 30% of us will be diabetic. This ever-expanding um, chronic disease epidemic largely fueled by obesity and a sedentary lifestyle and, and, and stress. Um, and so I wanted to obviously place uh, shed light on that and also shed light on the solution. The solution is pretty straightforward and it's really quite simple. And it's really about modifying nor- social norms. I mean, you, you know, the fact that we uh, today grill hot dogs on the 4th of July and give them to our five-year-olds and that's completely normal and acceptable in our country, I think uh, we need to think again. We know that hot dogs are essentially carcinogens. You know, These are processed meats that have been been classified as carcinogen by the World Health Organization. We need to bring education to the public because uh, no mother or father knowingly, if they know that, uh, is going to want to offer their child a hot dog and so we need to 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 educate and inform um, our citizens across the country and beyond. this is not just the United States. this is a global epidemic. And the film also tells my story. Uh, who I am, um, you know why this became a great passion for me, and we've talked about that uh, certainly it's it's my experience as a patient, but also uh, in practicing medicine over twenty plus years and just seeing so much pain and suffering that we know is largely preventable. And really the film is, is, is just helping everyone understand that the decisions you make are the most important variable in what happens to you. I think we're under the false impression that genes uh, predict our outcomes. They play a very small role. It's the choices, the behaviors, um, that you you choose every day are the the most important variable in regards to how you age, and that 's my hope for all of us. I want us all to age gracefully you know at age ninety two I want you to go out, spend an afternoon with your grandchildren, uh, joyful, dance, do whatever it is, and then go to bed and not wake up. I mean, that's that's the beautiful bookend that I hope and wish for, for all of us. I don't want us in a nursing home for six to seven years wearing a diaper, or staring at the wall, demented. And that's what I saw for so many years in clinical practice. And my hope is that this message, this very simple healing mes- message uh, reaches as many as possible so that we can regain control and, and, and produce our own um, beautiful, uh, you know, and end-of-life sequence that doesn't necessarily have to to be what, what we're regrettably so used to in our country.
0: Gosh, you're such an inspiration. I really enjoy hearing the passion, the sincerity. I mean, you live and breathe. Like you said, you practice what you preach, um, and I thank you so much for all the remarkable work that you've done, you know, going from medical school to medical school, creating this documentary, and doing everything that you can to get the message out. And hopefully, collectively, um, we can all work to educate and change a culture. Um, so thank you so much. And, and thank you so much for joining us on our podcast. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. I really enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website, emoryhealthcare.org livewell. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.